0: So today we're going to get a masterclass on nutrition and healthy eating. Lose weight, keep it off, look younger, live longer. The complete mind and body makeover. Sounds like a pretty tall order, doesn't it? But that is what the cover of Dr. Furman's book, Eat for Health Promises. Today we have the author of this book, Dr. Joel Furman. He's here with us and hopefully he's going to actually tell us how we can do this. But that's not all. He also says that patients can get off prescription medications for diabetes, high blood pressure and high cholesterol by following his diet. He says that after 25 years and treating thousands of patients, many with advanced heart disease, not one individual who followed his nutritional recommendations ever had a heart attack or died from heart disease. So he's going to tell us about his prescription for reversing and preventing heart disease and why he says nutrition works better than drugs for most diseases. So I'm sure by now you're dying to hear how you can achieve all this. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Joel Furman, a New York Times number one best-selling author who's written not one, but 12 books and counting. Dr. Furman is a board-certified family physician, nutritional researcher, and six-time New York Times best-selling author. His two most recent books are Eat to Live, Quick and Easy Cookbook, and Fast Food, Genocide. Uh, He basically teaches people how to live. So welcome to my podcast, Dr. Furman.
1: Thank you. Great to be here. Um, The bio and information you read was about five years old. And the book you mentioned, Eat for Health, was written more than 10 years ago. Actually, my most recent book is called Eat for Life, if people want the most updated version is called Eat for Life. And I have seven New York Times bestselling um, books.
0: Oh, excuse and, and me. S-
1: that's okay. And some of the information you gave was outdated, but that's okay because um, just trying to update it and make sure people have the right information that Eat for Life is the book. My website, drfuhrman.com, if people want more information about um, reversing disease through nutritional excellence. Thank
0: you for that update. Seven number one bestsellers. That's wonderful.
1: I've been very blessed to have affected the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, um, and transform people's lives. So they can not just prevent future tragedies, but also reverse diseases. Because what I'm saying here is that the same diet style that slows aging the most prevents cancer and maximizes human longevity is also therapeutically effective to reverse disease. So people's high blood pressure goes away, their diabetes goes away, they become non-diabetic, they get off their drugs. Their asthma goes away and the autoimmune conditions like psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, mixed connective tissue disease and lupus, those diseases also go, can go away and people can make full recoveries through the, through the protocols I've devised and, and been using for more than 30 years. So I'm saying um, nutrition is incredibly powerful enabling people to earn back their health.
0: Yes, and I read your first book, Eat to Live, uh, which was published, I think, in 2003.
1: Eat and, to Live is my second book. And okay. That was, yeah, that was published in 2004. My first book was called Fasting and Eating for Health, published in
0: 1996. Okay, wow. So you and I both know, we're both family physicians. Nice to have one on the on the podcast. But we both know that we got no nutrition education in medical school. And in med school, everyone is so busy and highbrow that nutrition seems like it's that simple stuff we weren't bothered with. Mm-hmm. So do you think medical education has changed as regards nutrition now?
1: I don't have um, any expertise in that to know where that what they're doing right now. I presume there might be some changes, but I know that The American College of Lifestyle Medicine, their membership has grown from 30, 40 years ago when it was 30 people in a room to now have a board certification program and tens of thousands of doctors who are board certified in lifestyle medicine, including residency programs and board certification exams. And even in New York City now with with, um, Eric Adams, the mayor, reversing his diabetes and becoming non-diabetic through nutritional changes. So he um, was instrumental in putting a lifestyle medicine office in all major New York City hospitals today. And many university centers and medical schools, including all the you know, Ivy League schools have lifestyle medicine offices. So even though they might be not be heavily trained in medical school, there are opportunities for doctors to learn more about lifestyle medicine in their postgraduate training, and even get, spe- even get an extra specialty or board certification in that specialty.
0: What would you say are nutrient-dense foods and what is a nutritarian diet?
1: Well, thank you for that. What I'm saying is that I generally divide food into three categories, processed foods, animal products, and then vegetation or produce. And the colorful plants are rich in phytochemicals and antioxidants that enable the immune system to, you could say, Gene silence abnormal genes that could lead to disease. Scientists call it gene. you don't express the gene if you have sufficient consumption of let's say green cruciferous vegetables and other onions and mushrooms and berries and seeds and you know in other words with adequate nutrient intake even with the BRCA1 gene or the GSTP1 gene increasing a woman's risk of breast cancer breast cancer still doesn't happen when people eat a diet that's ideal. So we're saying that there's gene surveillance where the body can actually seek out abnormal cells and remove them before they can replicate and become cancerous, but also prevent cells from becoming abnormal. So yes, our immune system is tremendously heightened. So a nutritarian diet is a diet that's rich in these foods. And I have this acronym, GBOMBS, which G-B-O-M-B-S, which stands for the six foods that have the most scientific evidence for protection against cancer. And those and the G bond stands for greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. So what I'm saying here that the produce is really our ticket to great health. We're a vegetable dependent animal and both animal products and processed foods like pasta and bread and salad oil and mayonnaise and donuts, cookies, crackers, rice cakes, breakfast bars, chips, you know, the, these processed foods people that make up 60% of the American diet are pretty void of nutrients. But I'm saying a piece of chicken is like a bagel because neither one contains a significant micronutrient load. They're not rich in vitamins and minerals and they don't contain any antioxidants and phytochemicals. The immune system needs to offer the cancer protection and anti-aging phenomenon that plant, that a variety of plant foods offers. So a nutritarian diet by design is nutrient dense, particularly of of these phytochemicals and antioxidants, and plant rich with traumatic reduction in both animal products and processed foods, including oils. So a nutritarian gets their fat intake from nuts and seeds, not from oil and animal products. So we might make a dressing with a rich garlicky tomato sauce with almonds and hemp seeds and Maybe black fig vinegar or something mixed in there and blended into a dressing, um, or, an, or a navel orange with toasted sesame seeds and cashews with blood orange vinegar and a squeeze of lemon made into a salad dressing. So, we're particularly using whole plants to get the fat because there's a, a biological tremendous difference between taking in sesame oil and sesame seeds or avocado oil and the avocado or walnut versus walnut oil a tremendous biological difference so a nutritarian diet attempts to idealize nutrient intake for the human species to push that envelope of human longevity to preclude a person or so person who's not going to get heart disease strokes dementia or cancers and i'm saying that the normal lifespan for humans fed optimally, should be between 97 and 107 years old, should be the center of the bell where most people lie, not the 75 to 80 that we get in America. And remember that in spite of advances in medical care, the lifespan of Americans has gradually decreased over the last 50 years. From 1950 to 2020, the lifespan of America has gone down. And through advances in medical care, drugs, increasing of cancer surveillance and surgical interventions and medications, we are not having less people die of heart attack, people are not living longer, they're not having less heart attacks or less cancers. It really doesn't work while people's waistlines get bigger and they continue to eat food that's not well designed for the human species. You can't medicate yourself into good health while you're eating yourself to an earlier death. It just doesn't work.
0: So before we get into specific diseases, let's just talk about food in general, in terms of some of your recommendations. What's wrong with milk? And why do you say cheese is the worst food?
1: Milk and cheese are both powerfully raise a hormone in the body called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. And if we view the science on this issue, there's more than 50 studies linking higher levels in the blood or higher circulating levels of IGF-1 with increased of hormonal sensitive cancers like breast and prostate cancer. IGF-1 is also linked to shortened lifespan and dementia and lower levels are associated with slower aging and longer lifespan. But generally speaking, IGF-1 is an excellent measurement of a person's risk of cancer. No food raises IGF-1 more than dairy products. And that's why countries that consume the most milk have the highest rates of breast and prostate cancer. So I'm saying that the evidence is is pretty strong and that one study corroborates another that higher levels of IGF-1 are linked to higher rates of cancer and that milk is a primary um, elevator of that hormone. But all animal protein foods, egg whites, fish, chicken, meat, the animal protein in general raises IGF-1, whereas Plant foods that are also rich in protein, like beans, seeds and nuts and green vegetables, do not raise IGF-1 as their protein level goes up. So if you would ask me, what's the most striking finding from the field of nutritional science over the last five years that turn people's thinking upside down and change their conscious ideas of nutritional science, I would say, the strong corroboration between numerous studies from different research or teams around the world showing that as animal protein increases in a person's diet, so does lifespan shorten accordingly and for all cause mortality. And as plant proteins increase in the diet, so lifespan gets enhanced and lower rates of cancer and, of course, cardiovascular mortality as well. So we're trying to understand these and why prior studies 20, 15 years ago didn't show these correlations as well. And the answer Mm -hmm. is because in those studies, people cut back on red meat. They said, if you don't eat as much meat, will you live longer, reduce cancer rates? What people did is they ate more chicken and less meat, or they ate more pasta and less meat, or they ate more other foods, they didn't really eat more intact, high protein plants instead of meat. They didn't eat more beans instead of meat, eat more vegetables instead of meat, eat more whole intact grains instead of meat, eat more. In other words, we're talking here, nuts and seeds instead of meat. We're talking about the improvement in the studies to control for the replacement foods. And when these studies look at replacement foods with high protein intact plant foods, we get dramatic protection of conventional causes of death, which is heart disease and cancer.
0: Now you mentioned IGF-1 and the correlation with cancer, but there used to be people who were trying to get their IGF-1 elevated because they believed that that would increase their longevity. So are you saying that the new studies show that an increased IGF-1 actually is not associated with longevity, it's actually associated with premature death?
1: Yes, but lower levels are also sought to increase longevity. In other words, at, the, at both extremes, you have increased risk of death. Some people with, because of frailty, smoking, alcoholism, or poor diets develop excessively low i g f one which increase risk of death from infection and, re- and reduce immune function. You need some baseline levels of i g f one for adequate you know hormonal level, but I'm saying that that when you get i g f one to levels that promote cancer and premature aging. That's the primary driver of IGF-1 to elevated levels, and don't forget the average level in America is between 200 and 250. So the average American level of IGF-1 is dangerously high in cancer promoting. And countries that and animal products generally over 10% of calories start to push IGF-1 above 200. Most plant-based eaters or vegetarians or vegans have levels below 150. Most marathon runners and athletes have levels you know, below 175, but as IGF-1 drops below 100, then you also could be placing a person at risk from too little protein. So protein adequacy is important, but of course, elevated levels of IGF-1 can be raised by excessive calories and overeating and by too much sugar and white flour as well. Animal protein is not the only driver of excessive IGF-1, but it's the most powerful driver of excessive IGF-1. Just like refined carbohydrates like Mm -hmm. white flour and sugar and honey is the strongest driver of excessive insulin. But animal protein also raises insulin too. But sugars and refined carbohydrates and high glycemic carbohydrates drive insulin much more powerfully elevated. And it's that that sandwich, that cancer-promoting sandwich of high IGF-1 and high insulin both that is most cancer-promoting.
0: Now, I'm sure you get this question quite a lot from people. So I'm going to ask you, does one have to take dairy to get enough calcium?
1: Clearly, you know the hippopotamus, rhinoceros, giraffe, elephant, and all the huge animals aren't drinking the cow aren't drinking the milk of another animal to get calcium. And where does the cow get the calcium from? Obviously, it didn't just appear from the midair. It comes from all the greens they eat. I'm suggesting that we are a green vegetable-dependent animal. And not only does green vegetable supply us with adequate calcium. But I'm also saying that the lack of green vegetables also damages immune function. And we have atrophy of the intraepithelial lymphocytes that surround the digestive tract and enable, um, protect the defenders at the gates of the castle are fueled by our dependency on green vegetables. And also that even autism and the leading cause of death of children is acute blastocytic leukemia, which is linked to the which is linked to the lack of green vegetables in the mother's diet, not just during pregnancy, but prior to conception. And and of course the consumption of luncheon meats are linked to acute blasted leukemia in children and brain tumors in children. What I'm saying here is that conventional health authorities, us doctors, advertise that women should take folic acid during childbearing years and pregnancy to prevent neural tube defects, not recognizing that folic acid is not the same compound as folate found in real vegetables and green vegetables and beans this advertisement of taking folic acid is enabling people to not eat green vegetables and think it's okay to just take a, folate, a folic acid pill instead of eating green vegetables, which then sets a series of events into place that, uh, that accelerates childhood cancer. And folic acid, because it's not folate, increases risk of both breast cancer and other cancers in the person, in the person that uses it, including the offspring. So the medical profession and the health authorities have made a huge mistake in advocating folic acid, instead of advocating the consumption of green vegetables so women have enough folate in their bloodstream and not think that there's some this, um, cookbook method of not looking at people's diets, let them just live on fast food and give them a folate, a folic acid pill is gonna, gonna suffice. And that just starts a explosion of autism, brain tumors, childhood cancers, and other birth defects that aren't neural tube defects instead of having people eat healthfully. So yes, I'm saying we're a green vegetable dependent animal and with uh-huh. adequate consumption of green vegetable, we get adequate folate, we get adequate calcium, we get adequate magnesium, phosphorus, and all the, those nutrients that are high in green vegetables.
0: And when people ask you what is the best milk equivalent, like something they want to put in tea or use for cereal, do you recommend almond milk, rice milk, other kinds of milk?
1: I do not recommend rice milk. I don't recommend turning carbohydrates into a liquid and drinking them because they're highly glycemic. And plus brown rice is in this country is contaminated with arsenic, two high levels of arsenic in brown rice. So I don't recommend we eat a lot of rice products. Um, so I recommend, you know, various milks. Um, it could almond be- Almond
0: milk, soy milk?
1: Yes, but my mo- almond milk or soy milk, but my most favorite milk are the high in ALA or the omega-3 fatty acids where you mix together walnuts and hemp seeds. And I, of course we make the milk by mixing usually one part Seeds and nuts, which is why it'd be a cup of hemp seeds and walnuts, to seven parts water, seven cups of water, and you could thicken it and make six cups of water. Maybe you could use one medjool date and one half a teaspoon of real vanilla bean powder and make, you know, seven glasses of, of milk that you can keep in your refrigerator for a couple, for three or four days. So if you want to make your own, you could just blend that in the, in the, in the high powered blender, or you could buy a commercial on almond milk or unsweetened soy milk.
0: People also want to know if you can get enough protein without eating meat and eggs?
1: Well, that's what the main, my main message here is that Americans eat too much fat, eat too much carbohydrate, and eat too much protein. And this idea that, we're def- that it's hard to get enough of these calorie- high macronutrients, fat, carbohydrate, and protein, I'm making this joke, but it's really serious. It's not quite a joke. I'm saying us humans live on half of what we eat half of what we eat meets our needs. And the other half meets the needs of our doctors, which means that we're eating double and triple the amount of calories, the amount of protein, the amount of fat, the amount of carbohydrate. And this idea that protein should be held in high esteem is something difficult to get. And you need to eat animal products to get It's just mythical and non-scientific. But in other words, I'm saying that beans and vegetables and nuts and whole grains, all are protein adequate for humans. And it's almost impossible for a human to be deficient in protein if they're eating real food, not if they're eating sugar and pouring oil over their food. Nuts and seeds, you know, have have like uh, 10 grams of protein per serving are relatively high in protein. But if you get your fat in your diet from oil instead of nuts and seeds and you're pouring 30 percent of your diet is made from oil, you're just taking out, you know, 20 grams of protein out of your diet by pouring oil over your food instead of putting those fat calories in from whole foods. There was a study out of England a UK study, which showed that European vegans had higher rates of osteoporosis than meat eaters did, more hip fractures or more. And looking at the diet, the diet was relatively low in calcium and low in protein because these mostly ethical vegans in the UK were living eating so much white bread, sugar and oil in their diet. I analyzed the diet compared to a nutritarian diet and their diets had between nine and 12% of protein and the people in the meat eating group were averaging between 14 and 18 percent calories from protein and the nutritarian diet which had double the calcium on the vegans and much more calcium than the people in the standard american diet eating group in that study had more than double the calcium and even had higher amounts of protein than the people in the meat than the meat eating group Now, how is that possible eating a plant diet could have more protein than a person eating meat at dinner and eggs for breakfast. And the reason is because the people eating who or serving for meat for dinner and eggs for breakfast were eating so many foods that had zero protein. They had so much sugar and so much oil and so much white flour and so much white rice and so much junk food in their diet, biscuits and things that when they took the nutritarian diet and almost everything they ate was protein adequate, it added up. So the nutritarian diet had between 16 and 18% protein, more the diet, more protein than the people eating the, in the animal product group. What I'm saying here is that the minute you start eating natural foods, foods that nature makes and not processing the, the nutrients out of them by turning nuts into oil and whole grains into white flour, you don't remove the pretty, plenty of protein. So plant-based diets based on whole foods do, are not deficient in protein unless there's too much fruit in the diet or there's too much oil in the diet. Because oil has no protein, it could be a major, could be a third of a person's caloric intake. So if you're not using too much oil or too much fruit, it's easy to get enough protein per calorie. The major issue with protein is people eating too much protein, not too little. So the question is wrong to begin with, not how do you get enough protein, the better question would be, how do you not get too much protein if you're eating animal products? And the answer to that question is, you can't eat much animal products, otherwise you're gonna push your protein levels too high you got to keep it, you know, just a, an occasional condiment or a little flavoring. For, eat big slabs of animal products and expect not to push your protein to the cancer-causing level. That's the bigger concern. The question about sugar is that I'm saying that white flour is a sugar equivalent. They both have almost the same glycemic Carbohydrate. The
0: mm-hmm.
1: carbohydrate enters the bloodstream as glucose. And I don't consider it a food. It acts on the brain like a drug. And because there's no significant load of antioxidants and no fibers, it enters the bloodstream rapidly. The body has trouble converting it into energy because you can't convert sugar into energy without cofactors like B vitamins and and, and also produces free radicals. So it shunts it to fat production. And honey and maple syrup are almost equivalent. Their sugar content their glycemic load and their level of nutrients is relatively low. The little extra... Minerals or a little extra different types of fructose versus sucrose versus is almost irrelevant. So all those foods are high glycemic, stressful on the body, strip the body of nutrients, promote fat storage. And the worst thing isn't even how that they accelerate fat storage and death. The worst thing is that they act as a drug on the brain, on the dopamine receptor, because they cause a caloric rush. They put so much calories in the bloodstream at one time that you could never have achieved eating a natural food like an apple or some carrots by eating honey, maple syrup and sugar and white flour and oils, by the way. You can put so much calories at one time in the blood that it can overstimulate the dopamine centers in the brain, the same areas of the brains that are stimulated by opiates and narcotics, and you become dopamine insensitive over time. So it makes you crave more calories than you require and feeling relatively empty if you're not eating something that duplicates this caloric rush, like you snorted cocaine. So I'm saying that white flour and sugar shouldn't really be considered food because they don't supply the elements for life like food does. And they act more like a drug on the body to make us crave excess calories and be unsatisfied unless we put an unhealthful amount of calories in the blood to stimulate our brains. They're so stimulating that I tell people, spell food backwards. D-O-O-F, right? Doof. And I want people to recognize that these things are addicting. People desire them and the primitive brain will control their behavior. So they're in situations where they're eating these foods and rationalizing why it's okay. So even this sounds radical, I'm saying that there's no reason why a person should self-destruct their future or consume substances that are, por- that are dam- dangerous or damaging, unless they're an addict. And alcohol, and sugar, and white flour, and fried foods, and fats, and greasy, high calorically dense food, and salt all stimulate the appetite to be unsatisfied with normal amounts of calories.
0: So the reason I asked that question was a lot of people think that when they substitute honey for sugar, that they're eating a healthier diet than they are with sugar. So fortunately you made the point that there's not much to choose between them.
1: It's irrelevant. Our only sources are, it's, it's almost irrelevant. We shouldn't be eating such concentrated calories, except, you know, I'm saying fresh fruit is different because the sugar is intracellular and bound to fiber and it's fed into the bloodstream more slowly and the high intake of fibers, particularly the fibers from beans and greens and mushrooms and onions, that the fibers are degraded by bacteria in the gut. And those high fibrous foods, which are also rich in phytochemicals, produce the growth of certain types of bacteria in the gut that create a thickened and adherent um, biofilm. The biofilm becomes thickened and adherent to the villi in the small intestines which then slows the absorption of glucose into the bloodstream. When you have oatmeal or a mango or a a carrot or peas, these are carbohydrates that are lower glycemic, but they enter the bloodstream slowly because your high intake of those other fibers that create for a maximizing the glycemic resistance of the biofilm.
0: And do you think fruits and vegetables still have the same nutritional content that they used to given the way that they are produced now?
1: You know, maybe not, but I'm not concerned with nutritional content as much as I'm concerned with, with contamination with chemicals on the surfaces and on the on substances. But to be more specific, in most of the staple foods like rice and corn and wheat grown in the Midwest, those foods are mostly grown under commercial conditions with artificial fertilizers and artificial chemicals, and much of their trace mineral content and have been lost. Some of the nutrient content has been lost. However, more tree foods, fruits and nuts, things that grow on trees, which have roots grow 30 feet into the soil, grown in coastal areas, are still have the same nutrient content as they did 30 years ago or 100 years ago. And some of these trees are 30 or 100 years old. The vegetable, as you probably are aware, there's a tremendous growth in the regenerative and organic agriculture community where people are using more natural biologic fertilizers and and compost, and having very um, excellent nutritional analysis that shown to be more robust and diverse than conventionally grown produce. So I'm not saying that's a major factor, but I am saying that, of course, I'm supporting organic agriculture, and because it's protective to the insects, it's protective to the environment, and of course, it decreases the possibility of soft tissue, leukemias and lymphomas in, my, in farm workers. Farm workers who work with pesticides are the, suffering the most with the effects of the, working with these chemicals. And being a farmer and the farmers are better protected themselves if they move to organic agriculture and don't get exposed to these chemicals as much. So even though our chemical exposure is lower, the work person making the food, is exposed to a lot of chemicals and we're destroying bees and other insects. And I'm also saying that natural soils are teeming with insects and bacteria and fungi, which increase the nutritional content of food. And our ultimate health and longevity is based on the health of our soils and the health of the foods we eat and the the foods we choose to put in our mouth, obviously.
0: Now you say that nutrition works better than drugs for most diseases. Can you give some examples?
1: I have a health retreat here in San Diego where people who are overweight, food addicts, come here and spend you know, a month or two or three months here, the minimum stays a month. And generally when people come and eat the diet that we serve them with our chefs and make it try to make it taste delicious, that 75% of the people with diabetes are, are non-diabetic within six weeks. And 90% are non-diabetic within six months. And the same statistics hold for reversing blood pressure and lowering cholesterol. And I published a study on this in the American, two studies, one in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine, and another in the International Journal of Disease Prevention Reversal. And these studies showed that not only did people lose weight, but they dropped their systolic blood pressure 28 points. The group that was on medication as a whole dropped their systolic blood pressure 26 points in six months, but that was 26 point drop while the medications were being withdrawn and, and gradually decreased. So the medications weren't stable. In the group that was not on medication with high blood pressure to start out with, weren't medicated, they dropped their blood pressure, stopped it for 28 points. So we're saying here that it normalizes a person's blood pressure, it has them lose weight, so they're not, and the combination of high nutrient eating and weight loss, which restores insulin sensitivity, so they become non-diabetic, type two diabetics. And so we're talking here about people who come in here told they need urgent angioplasty or even bypass surgery, who are able to get back the ability to walk hills without chest pain and open up their hearts and not just lose weight, eliminate the need for cardiac interventions. And so yes, we see radically in people's improvements, including psoriasis disappearing. I published a study on that. I've published studies on the reversal of diabetes, reversal of high blood pressure, cholesterol, heart disease, psoriasis, autoimmune disease, and even published a study showing increased lifespan in people who've been diagnosed with cancer with some remissions and um, long-term outcomes with cancer patients. And I published a study on that as well. So, And I have more than 500 of such cases on my website at drferma.com if people want to look at some of those cases but I'm talking about very advanced cases of cardiovascular disease. People who were in the hospital you know, on 11 different medications who even had low ejection fractions or cardiomyopathy were able to make recoveries. So yes, I'm saying that nutritional excellence is a powerful therapeutic intervention that drugs cannot replicate or do anything close to what nutrition can do. And when you pile on the medications and the person keeps, it's a permission slip. These things are like, enablers, so people can keep going eating fast food, keep getting heavier, keep eating junk food, and they just get more drugs and more drugs to make the numbers look better while the body gets sicker and sicker. If we never had these drugs, maybe some, maybe more doctors would feel that they'd have to make the person change their lifestyle, lose weight, cut out the salt, exercise, eat, eat more carefully, and get back and try to earn back their health. But the drug mentality and the way drugs have permeated health and medical care is the only answer, has led to the unbelievable amount of needless medical tragedies.
0: Do you not want us to stay in business?
1: I don't want what? Doctors to stay in business? I want doctors to become educators. I want people like family doctors to be hosting. They've charged for group visits and giving lectures on diabetes and heart disease and weight loss. and, And I want family doctors to be lecturing to see more patients in group, less individually, and being leaders in their community of excellent health and be experts at de-prescribing. I also published a study with 10 other physicians with de-prescription protocols. There's so much evidence today, reversal of diabetes. Even people going through gastric bypass and lap band are seeing reversal of diabetes. So there's a lot of de-prescribing, but we're finding that nutritional excellence works much better the nutritarian diet course is even more effective than getting surgery for long-term weight loss and reversal of diabetes, and now doctors are learning de-prescribing protocols to know which of the drugs you take away first. Obviously, you take away the insulin and the sulfonylureas first, and you leave on you know the GTP one inhibitors and the and the, and metformin maybe second, you know, we're talking about the proper way to take people down off medication and down off blood pressure medications gradually when they're not needing them anymore. Cause one thing we've learned is that when people adopt these very effective new lifestyle interventions, particularly these super healthy diets, the physicians aren't trained and they don't realize how dangerous it could be to leave them on the same medications because their blood pressure could drop too low. And when the blood pressure drops too low, not only a person can faint and smack their head on the sidewalk, but you can perfuse the kidney too low to, and, and cause kidney insufficiency from, being, from your blood pressure being over-medicated. And of course, the lack of diastolic return to the heart from, being, from the diastolic blood pressure being too low can precipitate atrial fibrillation or an irregular heartbeat or even a heart attack. Just like with, with diabetic medication, when people are getting well and eating less medication, if the sugars are medicated too low, the person can become, as you know, um, a hypoglycemic crisis. Yeah, so we're talking here about physicians have to be knowledgeable to how to not only to prescribe, but how to deprescribe to make sure people aren't overly medicated, especially when they're eating so carefully and losing weight.
0: Now, coming back to the cancer patients, do you have any specific instructions for them?
1: I'm saying that chemotherapy is relatively ineffective for most slowly growing cancers, like garden variety breast cancer and prostate cancer. It's more effective for rapidly growing cancers that are more life-threatening because when cells, so chemotherapy has, is overprescribed and has limited use. And for most common cancers, it does very little. But even when a person has a more aggressive cancer at a younger age and needs chemotherapy, it still is possible for them to die 5, 10, 15 years later of a secondary cancer that escaped chemo five or 10 years ago. The cancers that recur are going to be more resistant to chemo in the future because they're the ones that survived the chemo, and individual cells may have, stray cells may have escaped. And even though the tumor burden is gone, over the next five or 10 years, it could replicate and start spreading through the body and kill the person at a later stage. When you start to institute nutritional excellence in these protocols, in either of these conditions, for a slow-growing cancer, when chemo is ineffective, or after a person gets chemo, when chemo was needed for a fast-growing cancer, and some stray cells were able, were able to be, still survive, then nutrition enables the immune system to maximize its ability to what's called immunosurveillance, to surveil and identify abnormal cells that can be removed. And when you remove an abnormal cell, it's called apoptosis, the immune system can identify and remove abnormal cells before they can kill us. It may not be able to identify a big mass of tumor or an advanced tumor or a rapidly growing tumor that can overwhelm immune capabilities. But when you have slow stray cells remaining or a slow growing cancer that's not coalesced into a mass, the immune system can be very effective at preventing expansion or advancement in these cases. Yeah. So, whether you're using it as an adjunct or as a preventive measure. So, for example, as a person in my family, when they were young, they had an aggressive premenopausal breast cancer, right? And that occurred about 20 years ago. And she wasn't following my dietary recommendations, but after she got cancer, she did. And of course, She's in excellent health today with no recurrence of this aggressive cancer. An example, I gave some case histories of um, people who were 25 years ago with metastatic ovarian cancer that spread into the lungs with four liters of fluid taken out of their lung, full of metastatic ovarian cancer cells who underwent chemotherapy at that time, but still given less than a year to live because of the spread of the cancer. Because a lot, you know, ovarian cancer can be a death sentence. And this person is alive and well with no cancer now, 27 years later. And in that study I published, I gave a series of cases with ovarian cancer that were metastasized that were treated. But now if you compare those people who are alive 20, 25 years later, you find that most people treated with ovarian cancer are not alive five, 10, 20 years later. So even after chemo, this way of eating has a possibility of um, a tremendous effect of giving people protection against future recurrence of those cancers. And there are other studies on that published by other researchers around the world. For example, a study that followed women with breast cancer for 10 years, found that those given flat lignans from flaxseed had a 71 decreased risk of death over that 10 year period. We have lots of data to show that, that intervening with nutritional input, even when people have cancer, reduces chance of death from cancer.
0: Now, where did you publish the study on ovarian cancer?
1: It wasn't just ovarian cancer. It was a series of cancer cases. Okay. It was in the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Okay. I think it was, I could look it up, but I think it was published in 2020. So, yeah, so we're trying to idealize the diet and still move towards a more plant-based diet for the environment, for protection against climate change, and also for our own personal health. For health. It makes a lot of sense in today's world to move as much as possible to a plant-based diet and then take a few supplements to give, give you what you would have been missing in animal products if you think that, if you require that.
0: Finally, can you name three foods we should avoid and three foods we should eat every day?
1: Well, just three foods we should eat every day. Well, the top ones are G-bums, but of course I'm saying that green vegetables, both raw and cooked, are probably the most important food, but I want people to eat onions and mushrooms and nuts and seeds every day as well. So, and pret- Are you nuts- still
0: recommending a pound of salad a day?
1: Well, overall, I'd like people to eat a pound of raw vegetables a day. You can split it up between lunch and dinner. And one carrot or one tomato could weigh half a pound. But yes, I want people to eat a significant amount of raw vegetables and cooked vegetables. One of my daughters was four years old. She would take a whole 10-ounce box of frozen broccoli to nursery school with her.
0: That's, That's 10 funny. ounces
1: of cooked vegetables for a four-year-old. So a pound of vegetables a day for an adult seems like a lot, but it's not really that much. Um, and
0: what foods should we avoid?
1: Well, you should avoid sweeteners, um, animal products that are barbecued or baked to darkened or crispy or browned. If you're going to put any animal products in your diet, it should be water-based cooking cooked in a soup or a sauce or a wok, where well, you're not going to darken, brown, or bake or, um barbecue it or burn the outside which increases the polyaromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines that makes it more cancer causing if you're gonna put a little chicken or turkey in your soup or have a little fish that's you know in your stew or something or cook it on a a low flame or in a water-based cooking method the point i'm making is don't barbecue and darken things or overcook them and then so the most important things not to eat are fried foods and barbecue foods and processed foods and processed meats and sweets And don't forget, I consider commercial baked goods and white flour to be a sweet, and I consider them to be not even a food, but a drug. It's avoiding a tremendous amount of the American diet, because 60% of the American diet is just the processed plant foods alone, is 60%. Oils and junk food and processed foods, and another 30% is animal products. So the Americans are eating 90% of their diet. And by the way, the American diet is only 2% vegetables, and I'm saying vegetables should be the majority of what you eat, of course, not just 2% of your diet.
0: Well, Dr. Furman, as promised, you're pretty radical. It's been fascinating talking with you. And I do hope you'll come back one day and answer more of my listeners' questions. But I am really appreciative of you sharing all your obvious knowledge about nutrition with us. And thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It's, it's been an honor to have you. And I really, really, really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure always love to help and, and spread this message. Good luck to you. And of course, all the people you affect.
0: Okay. Thank you so bye. much. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This is the end of the first part. And I hope you come back to listen to the second part of my podcast with Dr. Joel Furman, seven times New York Times bestselling author and board certified family physician and nutrition researcher. He is Quite impressive in his passion. And as you will see in the second half, we continue to learn a lot from him. But at the end of the day, it is amazing that there is the potential for doctors to treat patients and transform their lives by getting to the root cause of disease, which would be nutrition and lack of exercise not only to treat symptoms, but prevent disease without having to prescribe copious amounts of self-inflicted side effect inducing pills. Thank you so much for joining me on Wellness and Wisdom. If you liked this program, please push the subscribe or the follow button and leave me a message. Also, if you have any questions for Dr. Furman, Please write them in the box and I can promise that I will get them to him and get you an answer. So thanks again for joining this podcast. Take care now and stay healthy. Bye for now.